This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Um, it's, uh, it's a real privilege to be with you guys. So if you're new here, I hope I get the privilege of getting to know you. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to open up this ancient word, right? Thousands of years ago from a culture very different than ours. And we're going to discover together why it is so relevant for modern people. So uh, we're in um, the middle of a sermon series called Meeting Jesus. And we've talked about how nobody ever has a moderate reaction to Jesus when they truly meet him. And today, we're going to see another encounter with Jesus. But this time, it's not one person. It is a group of persons. Today, we are going to see the Pharisees have a run-in with Jesus. In fact, they're basically going to take him to trial. And their reaction is definitely not moderate. In fact, they want to have him killed. Now, what could possibly get the Pharisees so mad that they want to murder Jesus? You ready for it? The idea of rest. The idea of Sabbath. Crazy, right? Well, let me tell you about the Pharisees and their context so that you can kind of see how this thing works. It was about 600 years before Jesus, Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, it falls at the hands of the Babylonians, and with it, Jerusalem, their holy city. So many Jews were exiled and deported. But then a new empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, comes through, and many Jews were returned to their homeland. Okay? And during that period, things weren't perfect, but they were stable. Ezra and Nehemiah records Israel's attempt to rebuild their city and to rebuild their temple. But not long after the Roman Empire comes through. Now, with the Greco-Roman culture, they brought a lot of elitism, right? They were incredibly licentious. Their culture was in direct contrast to the traditional values of the Jews, especially what is known as Second Temple Judaism. So, in light, in light of what they considered liberalism, the Jews said, you know, if we're going to maintain our culture and identity and not get seduced by the Romans, then we better not mix with them, right? We've got to focus on our traditional values. And this, of course, becomes the platform for a new sect of Judaism that we know as the Pharisees. This is like, um, the Pharisees were like a conservative, grassroots populist group who wanted to bring their religion back to what they remembered before the, Ra the Romans took over. And this religious sect, was, they were considered the good guys, all right? They were, they were the ones who wanted to restore Israel's glory. Now, one of the most important issues for the Pharisees was this idea of Sabbath. Remembering the Sabbath was not simply about resting. It's what marked you out as a Jew, right? This was both about reverence to God, but it was also about citizenship to Israel. Israel was the only people who practiced Sabbath. And the Pharisees taught that if every Jew kept the Sabbath, 
then Messiah would come back. So to them, violating the Sabbath is violating everything it means to be a Jew. All right? You guys starting to, 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 to get the picture here? So the Pharisees, with their strict rules and their orthodoxy, right, as they defined it, they began to grow in incredible power with the people. And by the time that Jesus comes around in the first century, the Pharisees were the power brokers in Israel. Their rules and their orthodoxy became very useful for keeping the power and keeping their influence. And, and while their legalistic orthodoxies gave them power, it made the people focus on themselves. It made them focus on their performance instead of focusing on the heart of God. And so they set the stage. They, they, the Pharisees shaped the national conversation and they kept the power. Now listen, that was 2,000 years ago, but we still see this kind of phenomena in our modern culture, don't we? Right? In all kinds of arenas. So for instance, there's food orthodoxy. Right? You better feed your family locally sourced, free-range, gluten-free, organic food. Because if you don't, do you really love your children? Right? Right? I'm all in for eating healthy guys. But I got a few vegan buddies. Like they're super judgy and legalistic. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Right? Uh, this happens in politics, doesn't it? It happens in politics. You know, for instance, a couple years ago, you have Marco Rubio, junior Republican senator from Florida. He promotes immigration reform. And what happens? His own party eats his lunch, right? Or you have, on the other side, Democratic rep Representative Dan Lipinski. He's this pro-life guy, Democrat pro-life guy. He is fiercely and ugly critiques from his own party. I mean, they almost, they want him out. Why? Why? Because both of these guys are outside of the orthodoxies of the power brokers, aren't they? You know that churches have orthodoxies too? And I'm not even talking about theology, right? In our modern evangelical culture, if I were to say something a theologically heterodox or a little bit borderline, edgy, uh, heretical, right? No, no one would even notice. No one would even bat an eye. But if I say something culturally or politically fringe, everyone's red flags are up, right? That's what y'all are listening for. Politics, not theology. And not you. Y'all are the best, right? But y'all know what I'm talking about. But why is this the case? I mean, what are our hidden interests? Some churches have these orthodoxies about King James Version Bible only, or no beer or wine, or work with the poor or immigrant communities perceived one way, or it's hymns only, or it's Hillsong only, or whatever, or no shorts and flip-flops, right? Got to show some respect to the Lord, right? Or bow ties only, legalists, right? Now here's the point, here's the point. In any realm, you can drop the rules in a way that keeps you and your interests and your tribe completely protected. And this can happen even in the realm of religion. And here's the problem. You can draw up the rules. Listen, you can draw up the rules in a way that actually excludes Jesus himself. Where Jesus is not even orthodox enough for you. That's what the Pharisees did, y'all. 
That's what the Pharisees did. See, the Pharisees had these hidden interests. They drew up the rules on the Sabbath. They misused the blessing of the Sabbath. And Jesus was left on the outside of true religion. Jesus, if he were permitted, he would ruin what was truly important to the Pharisees. So what did this religious populist pharisaical group do? They killed him, right? They brought, they brought a lawsuit against him. They took him to trial and they handed out the verdict and the sentence. And that's going to be the imagery that I'm going to use this morning. Lawsuit, trial, verdict, and sentence. So that's going to be our outline as we study this passage. Would you, in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? And let's give attention to Matthew chapter 12, the first 14 verses, the very words of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now he went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you has... Who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take a hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May he bless it for you and me. You may be seated. Get a little water. So as we um, begin our study this morning, it occurred to me that I should probably start by explaining a biblical vision of Sabbath. Now the word Sabbath or Shabbat, it literally means to stop or to cease. And so we understand it to to rest. And this is an essential practice of all followers of Jesus. See, when God made, made the heavens and the earth, he did so in six days. And on the seventh day, he stopped, right? To rest and to enjoy his creation. Now, the Bible tells us that we all are made in God's image. What this means is that resting, listen, 
resting is built into the very fabric of our humanity. Now, being a people who prioritize rest, that doesn't mean that we don't work extremely diligently. Daily work is incredibly, but incredibly valuable to God. See, God is a worker. And so using our gifts and our talents and passions in our daily work is a part of our humanity too. In fact, our daily work, whether it's building uh, economies or producing or raising children, teaching students, or even just taking out the garbage, right? All of these are God's primary means for accomplishing his mission to redeem and restore the world. So diligence is absolutely extolled in the Bible. Now listen, for me, that this is not hard to envision, right? Y'all guys know I come from an immigrant family. So from a very young age, my parents wanted us to know what it means to work hard and to work very long hours. So when I hear this language of like Sabbath and rest, I don't even believe it, right? I mean, it feels like a necessary evil or like a sign of weakness. And so we can, dist- we can distort this, this value of work. And I, I know I am not alone on this, Right? In our culture, we're always looking for upward mobility and we brag about our busyness and long hours. We wear our long hours like a badge of honor. We work and we work and we work to prove something about ourselves. And for some of us, this is even spilled into our spiritual lives, right? We work and we work and we work for God to prove something to ourselves. But Christianity teaches something profoundly different. See, the Bible sees rest as a gift. In Psalm 127 in the Old Testament, it makes this point really explicit when it says, it says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. (laughs) Isn't that good? Gives to his beloved sleep. And so there is this rhythm in our walks with the Lord, right? We expend ourselves for others, but then we also recharge and refill. And we do this consistently, right? Christians have a rhythm of rest. It's not that we work for one month straight and then we just crash. No, the Bible calls us to build rest into the fabric of our lives. And so our Sabbath actually touches us every single day. So for instance, we have Sabbath minutes. Follow me here. Every day, Christians stop, stop their hyper-focus on productivity, right? And we worship. We call these things daily devotionals. We stop, we read the Bible, we pray. All right, this is our way of protesting the idea that we're simply machines of production, because we're not, Right? Our days, every day, are redemptively interrupted by the worship of God. Now, additionally, not only do we have Sabbath minutes, but we have Sabbath days. We give God, right, the first fruit of our week. On our first day of each week, we stop and we dedicate time to him corporately, communally to worship. This is what we're doing right now. And let me just say as an aside, our culture could care less about your convictions as a Christian. In the 80s, right, 
in the 80s, there was at least this unspoken rule that you don't plan events on Sunday mornings. But now, every sports team has something on Sunday morning. So my kids are in swimming and volleyball and dance. And roughly every third Sunday for half the year, there is an important tournament on Sunday morning. So before the season even starts, I have to have the super awkward conversation with the coaches. And I say, hey, listen, you know, we are Christians. And so we worship on Sunday mornings. I'm not, I'm not trying to be judgy. I'm not trying to be legalistic. But, and, and in fact, coach, I hope you can count on us. I'm going to bring Gatorade for the kids. I like them. But just know that if a game falls on a Sunday morning, we can't join you. We love you, but we're not going to be there, right? We're Christians, and this, is, this isn't just like a side gig, right? This isn't something we just do when it's convenient. It's, it's woven into the fabric of our lives. And so our kids are the awkward kids, and they miss tournaments on Sunday morning all the time. And listen, there is so much pressure to assimilate, right? There's so much pressure to just live as if what we're doing right now is just optional. It's kind of a joke, and it's just a cute thing that we do, right? Let me just say, because I want y'all to hear this, parents. I know there's a little bit of an aside here. My kids making these little bitty sacrifices to live a Christian life has been the single most powerful discipleship tool in their lives. First, it's provoked so much interest in our faith. Like, People get really curious when Christians kind of live out their faith in a way that costs them just a little bit. And this isn't like, no one's dying for their faith, but it costs a little bit. People get really interested in that. And it's really good for our kids to experience that. All right, so we have Sabbath minutes. We have Sabbath days. And we also have Sabbath weeks. So we need vacations, for example, extended time of recuperation, extended time of reflection. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they took the Sabbath really seriously. And yet, as we see in this text, the Pharisees didn't think that was good enough, right? So in verse 2, look there in your text. They accuse his disciples of violating the Sabbath, and they want to bring a lawsuit against him, alleging that they are working because they're plucking heads of grain to eat, right? So in Israel... Just so you, you, let me just clue you in. There's this legal practice called gleaning. And so, like, for instance, when a landowner had a field, he would harvest the whole thing except for the very edges. And the idea was that the poor or travelers or immigrants would have access to food. It's actually one of the oldest forms of social safety nets that are intrinsic to the Hebrew law. So the Jews had the most extensive laws that promote justice for the poor and for the vulnerable. But the disciples, they were gleaning on the Sabbath. So if they grabbed a head of grain, right, and they kind of removed the husk, the Pharisees considered that work as if they were like harvesting or something like that. And so what are they doing? They're just kind of setting up Jesus. They're setting them up. So Jesus responds in three ways. He kind of gives three evidences that these guys are nuts, right? So uh, it's, it's his way of saying, you guys don't know what the Sabbath is all about. So the first thing he cites, look there, verse 3 and 4, is a story about King David uh, in 1 Samuel. Actually, at the time, king, the, the king was Saul, but he was like an imposter king of Israel, 
But David was the true anointed king. But he and his men were being hunted and being persecuted by Saul. So they're always on the run. Well, they find themselves in the tabernacle. And and the priests would bake 12 loaves of bread, represented like the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they consecrated this bread. And no one could eat the bread except for the priests at the very end of the week. This is what was called the show bread, the show bread. So David comes into the tabernacle. And he, and he treats the showbread, this consecrated bread, like a buffet line, right? I mean, they're, they're pounding it out. And uh, no one has a problem with this, right? Why? Why? Because David is actually the anointed one of Israel. And so Jesus is citing that, verse 3 and 4, and he's saying, that is like this. That's what it is. Because I am the anointed one, right? And then Jesus presents a second evidence in verse 5. He says, you know who works on the Sabbath? The priests do, right? I mean, have you ever sacrificed and slaughtered an animal? It's a lot of work, right? I mean, and they killed a lot of animals on the Sabbath. I mean, clearly there is a kind of toil that is permitted on the Sabbath. So Jesus is essentially saying, my crew and I, we stand between God and the people and we provide for them. We're, we're the ones performing priestly duties, right? That's what he's doing. And then lastly, evidence number three, verses six through eight. And this is perhaps the most compelling. So Jesus is quoting both the prophets uh, Micah and Hosea. And he's saying, listen, this is the heart of God. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, the law is a gift to bless. The law is not a box to check to prove that you are holy The Sabbath is rest from performing, don't you see? And he says, oh, also, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, by the way, I created it. I wrote the laws of the Sabbath because I am the Sabbath. What you are looking for in the Sabbath, that rest that you are looking for, can only be found in me. Right? Now, at this point, The stage is set, right? So the Pharisees are moving from a lawsuit and they're taking Jesus to trial. So the Pharisees think, you know, maybe Jesus just talks a big game, right? But let's actually see what he does. Now, as we know, in the Old Testament, the law, to include the fourth commandment, right, deeply cares about the Sabbath. Word, but you can't write additional rules. Like um, you could write a two-letter word, But you can't write a three-letter word because then you're doing work, right? Uh, You could walk 1,100 paces, but if you walked 1,101, you're working, right? Um, You could not even spit on the ground on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees, because your saliva would dent the dirt, make mud, and you could be farming, right? It's crazy. It was excessive and, and way beyond the scope of God's purposes, Now, in the Bible, there are stipulations and exceptions. For instance, if your ox or your donkey fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, you can go ahead and rescue your animal, right? You don't have to look at Milky White the the cow and say, sorry, big fella, you're just going to have to sit tight for a while till tomorrow, and then I'll pull you out. No, no, no. You could help your animal out of the ditch, right? Well, 
The Pharisees knew that Jesus had a proclivity towards being compassionate, right? They heard rumors of his caring for people and healing them. And so in verse 9, it, te- they tell that they went, it tells us that Jesus and his, and his followers went to the synagogue. All right, listen. Jesus always worships on the Sabbath. And guess who the Pharisees brought, everyone? A man with a withered hand. A handicapped man, right? Would Jesus heal this man? Now, according to their over-the-top laws, if it's not a life or death situation, you cannot heal. Because that would be work, they said. So, in verse 11, look there, referencing the law about helping their animals. He says, are you telling me that God's heart is to help animals but not help a human being, right? Have you lost your minds? Right, that's not in the Bible, but you know, that's what he's kind of getting at, right? Now listen closely. How did the Pharisees get to this point, you guys? Like, how did they get to this point? I mean, how could they be so blind? It seems obvious enough that Sabbath law is God's way to care and to provide for them. Look, would you just think with me for just a second about Israel's history? For 400 years, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And for 400 years, they never had not one day off. And when they were finally free and rescued, God said, stop working. You're not cogs in a machine. You are no longer slaves. You're made in my image. Rest. Rest. In fact, every seventh day, rest as an affirmation of your dignity and as an affirmation of your freedom in me. Rest. Trust God. Trust that while you sleep, God keeps working. You don't have to play the role of God. Rest as an act of faith in God. Now, do you know why the Pharisees added all of these extra rules and then fulfilled them, might I add? It's because it gave them power. And it gave them power in two ways. On one hand, because they were so stringent, they felt morally superior, right, to everyone else. And if they were the most zealous then they could retain the position of the ruling class of the people. And who doesn't like authority and prestige in their own culture's eyes? Right? It feels good to be someone. And now the second way is that if they could perform all the laws and even beyond the laws, then they would know that they are good enough. Here's the logic. Who needs faith in God's approval, in God's provision, if by your good and moral performance, you can earn the approval by yourself, the one that you desperately seek. Now, do y'all see like the deep irony here? The Sabbath was supposed to be a gift of rest, but then the Pharisees reduce it to an act of piety that must be performed. And at the moment that the Sabbath becomes a performative act, it takes away the rest that it was promising. The Pharisees were so confused and so lost in their own hidden interests that they could not see how healing a human 
was more valuable than pulling an animal out of a ditch. Listen, you guys, listen, Trinity, real closely. I am afraid that we have found ourselves in the very same places as the Pharisees. I mean, maybe we don't do it with Sabbath laws, but we do it with everything else. We have mothers and fathers who need their children to go to the right universities so that they get approval and validation from their peers businessmen and businesswomen who need their companies to perform well so that they will be validated as leaders. School kids have to wear the right brand of clothes because there's these unspoken rules of affluence, this inner tribe, right? Or high school kids who have to buy into woke culture and do, do, their thing with whatever new social justice initiative. You got to prove that you're socially conscious, get validation in that way, right? One tweet at a time. Homeschool moms who have to have their kids in AP English in seventh grade, right? Prove that you're a good mom. And oh, by the way, you have to keep up these bodies that look like you're 22 years old and never had a baby, right? Goodness. If you make $1 million, then you need two. If you make two, you need 10. See, we're always performing, and we're always seeking approval and validation, and there is no rest. Something I see all the time is um, with parents who have children who are grown up now, maybe have their own families. See, older parents, they want to feel affirmed in their parenting, But inevitably, a grown child comes to the parent and says, hey, there were some things in our house growing up that perhaps were a little bit harmful. I I wish things could have been a little bit different. And we, as the parent, we cannot hear it. We cannot listen. We defend. We deny. We justify. We cover up. Why? Because our performance is being challenged. And our performance is the main thing that we look to to know that we're enough. To know if we're acceptable. We need to know that we are approved. This is exhausting. Because we have lost ourselves on this performance treadmill, we are perpetually tired and our bodies are broken down. You guys know what I'm talking about. I know you do. You can't shake this weariness, this tiredness of the soul. You come back from vacation, tired. You wake up in the morning, tired. Nothing tastes, in the words of Marie Antoinette. Nothing tastes. And why? Because you don't have that deeper rest of your soul from that performance treadmill. I don't want to leave you there, but let me finish my sermon with these final verses. This is verses 13 and 14. So the, ver- the Pharisees, they brought a lawsuit against Jesus, and then they took him to trial in the synagogue. And now what we have is the verdict and the sentence. And what happens? We see that the handicapped man is healed. Now, Jesus didn't even touch this man, all right? He didn't say, be healed, right? He simply said, you see that in the text, stretch out your hand. 
and it was healed. And verse 14 tells us then the sentence. Look there, verse 14, it says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Do you all see the juxtaposition? While sentencing Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath, they are planning to kill him. What is it about Jesus that is so infuriating? The Pharisees knew that Jesus would completely destroy the system that protected their hidden interests. And so they killed him. Listen, y'all, today, this is why people we love and respect ignore Jesus. This is why we are highly motivated to find reasons to doubt Jesus. It's not that we can't believe in him. It's that we know that if we do believe in him, he will meddle with our system. We will lose control. Who wants to lose control? Jesus surfaces up our hidden interests. And so what do we do? We kill him. I mean, we don't kill him with a weapon, but we kill him with convenient disbelief. Disbelief is helpful. It's a useful tool to keep us in power. The Pharisees, they succeeded. Do you know what the Lord of the Sabbath did on his final Sabbath, he died. And he worked. He did the work, the ultimate work of atonement for humanity. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said these words, it is finished. What is Jesus talking about? It's this. Jesus fulfills the work of atonement so that you and I can enjoy the rest of acceptance. You don't have to perform in order to have the only approval that can give you rest. I don't know what you think Christianity is or why we're doing all of this, but this is the bare essence of the whole Christian gospel that Christ performed for you. You couldn't do it. He performed for you. He is your Sabbath. He gives you unbreakable rest, unbreakable validation and approval, what your soul craves and needs. I, you guys know that I love art and pictures and poetry. So um, my friend Eduardo Martinez wrote a poem on this passage. And I just want to finish with a little bit of poetry. Can I read poetry for you? This is um, a poem called To All Who Are Weary. Listen to these beautiful words. Let it Awaken your imagination. For far too long my heart pursued the vanities of flesh. My solace found not in the Lord, but in pleasure and success. But my heart did not find rest as I sought the void to fill 
perhaps not fame nor praise for me, but the laws are God's goodwill. At last I thought the Lord will see my works and not condemn. My son, your works are filthy rags, tainted with your sin. For far too long you've toiled in vain in trite obedience. You thought your works could earn you life and serve as your defense. Oh, come and glean the pastures of his holy righteousness. The fruit we reap was sown in blood so that we could find true rest. Oh, come, oh, come and work no more and count on God's good grace. Our restless hearts alone are stilled in the arms of Christ's embrace. Amen.